0: So I'm Chris Budd, I'm the Gresham Professor of Geometry and today I'm going to tell you some great mathematical myths and we'll start with a joke which comes from student bloopers, the book, which is a myth is of course a female moth. So what have myths and maths got in common, apart from the fact they're almost the same word? We don't tend to think of myths when we talk about maths, because myths are the stuff of legend, they're the stuff of wonder, they're the stuff of mystery. Maths, on the other hand, has this reputation for being coldly logical. There is no room for doubt, there's no room for error or is there? So it's certainly true that maths itself, if done properly, is a logical subject, and it doesn't have errors in it. But maths is often not done properly, or to be more accurate, it's not reported properly. And just like stories can be retold and retold and retold, and that's how a truth can turn into a myth, So a mathematical story itself can be retold and retold, and then it becomes a mathematical myth. And that's what I'm going to tell you about today. I'm going to tell you various stories about how good mathematics, by retelling and the way it enters the public consciousness, somehow becomes something a little bit different. And this is especially true when people seek order in the universe. They can see mathematics and patterns where actually there aren't any. And I'll describe some of those as we go through this talk. And I think this is a great shame. There are mathematical myths out there that are actually taught in schools, they're written about in books, they're frequently reported in the newspapers, and they're actually nothing like as exciting and powerful as mathematics itself. And mathematics, in my opinion, and others really does hold the key to many of the patterns in the universe. I can't really explore that today, but I hope that comes out in many of the other lectures that I give. So, we'll start this talk not by looking at mathematical myths, but actually looking at myths themselves. So myths are, as I said, stories. They may have had some historical fact, but then they become stories. And there are several myths out there, great historical stories, which actually talk about maths. So maths does appear in myths. And my favourite myth of all is this one. It's the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. And the Minotaur was a creature which was half bull and half man. And he lived in the island of Crete. And he was imprisoned in the heart of a labyrinth designed by a mathematician, Daedalus. And I won't tell the story in detail, but basically the story involves the Prince Theseus from um, Greece, who came over to Crete to rescue Cretan men and women who were trapped inside the labyrinth and being eaten by the minotaur. And he cracked the labyrinth using an algorithm, which was to unravel a ball of string provided for him by the the Cretan princess Ariadne. And he cracked the labyrinth, killed the minotaur, and rescued the, prince, the Greek uh, boys and girls in the process. And What I love about this story is that we have in this myth a real, live mathematical object, namely the labyrinth. And we also have a computer algorithm. Namely, you can solve it by unraveling a ball of string. And that algorithm is still used to solve things like labyrinths um, today. So here we have a geometrical object which appears in a myth. And that's always very nice. Another very nice example of maths appearing in a myth is in Virgil's Aeneid. So um, Aeneas talked about um, Aeneas, who was a Trojan prince, who went to the city of Carthage where he met Dido, the queen of Carthage. And he didn't realise when he met Dido, queen of Carthage, that she was possibly one of the first ever mathematicians. It's not actually written as such in in, uh, the stories, but she must have been because the story of Carthage is that when uh, Dido was granted leave by the gods to create a city... She was told that she could cover the city with the amount of land that she could enclose within the hide of an ox. So there we have the ox here. And being a mathematical lady, Dido cut the ox into a very, very thin strip of leather, I suppose. And she attached one side to the ocean and stretched it out as much as she could into a semicircle And then she built her city in there. And this is a very mathematical thing. It's what we now call the isoperimetric theorem. It wasn't called that in the story, of course, but that's what we now call it, which is that if you have a straight line, which is the shore of the ocean, and you stretch a uh, piece of, in this case, leather of fixed perimeter, then the shape which encloses the greatest area is a semicircle. And that's where Dido built her city. So she was definitely a mathematician in that. So the story actually correctly reports that she stretched it into a semicircle. That's my second myth. And a third myth that's often told about maths, but which is certainly not true, is the scary maths myth. So here we have the scary quadratic equation about to devour an unsuspecting student. And I hope that you have gathered from some of my lectures that maths actually isn't scary at all, that everyone can engage in maths, that everyone can get something out of maths, and that maths is useful for everyone's lives. But sadly, the myth about maths in the press is that it is this horrible, scary beast, which is, of course, like all maths, oh, sorry, all myths, not maths, completely untrue. I'm going to make this mistake all through the lecture, so. (laughs) OK, so those are various myths in which maths features. But but that's not really what I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about are various stories where misconceptions or misunderstandings, deliberate or otherwise about maths, have somehow got into the public consciousness. And these are the ones which are then rediscovered all the time by reporters or journalists or stuff, and misreported about maths. So I want to talk about some mathematical myths. And I'm going to start with the oldest myth there is, and the one which most repeatedly comes up in the press, and that is the myth of the golden ratio. The number phi, which is the number 1.61803... What is this number, and why is it a myth? Well, the claim is that the golden ratio is somehow a divine proportion. It appears in that scholarly textbook, The Da Vinci Code. A film about it, everything. In which it is claimed that every part of the human body somehow has proportions which relate to the golden ratio. This is a picture I downloaded from the internet where they claim that the ratio of the hand to the rest of the arm is in this ratio. And I couldn't for the life of me work out how they got that number from that picture. So that's the claim. That is the myth. And what I'm going to do is tell you a story about this. So we'll start out with the truth. Like all myths, we have some truth. We'll then have a look at the myth. And then I will reveal the great truth at the end to show that the golden ratio really is a very special number, but not for the reasons that the press normally reports. So um, here's a statement so you can see what people say about it. I know there's an awful lot of words there. I won't repeat them all. But Mario Livio is an author that wrote a book about the golden ratio, nature's greatest number. He said lots and lots of important people have studied it, and he finishes by saying the golden ratio has inspired thinkers of all disciplines like no other number in the history of mathematics. That's quite a claim. Is it true? Well, we'll see. So let's have a look at the truth, the truth about the golden ratio. And it starts in really quite a sensible way. The golden ratio starts with an object we call the golden rectangle. Here's a golden rectangle. And what happens with the golden rectangle is that you have a shape of sides A and A plus B. And if you cut a square off that shape, that's the blue bit there, you're obviously left with another shape, which is also a rectangle. And the golden rectangle has the property, unique amongst all rectangles, that if you cut the square off, what you're left with is a shape which has the same proportions as the original. Okay, so that is the golden rectangle. And it satisfies the mathematical property that A plus B divided by A, which is the ratio of that side to that side, is A divided by B, which is the side there to there. So those two rectangles have the same proportions. Or mathematically, A over B is A plus B over A. So if I divide both sides by a, but if I call this number here phi and divide this side by a, we find that if a over b is phi, which is greater than one because I want a to be the largest side, then phi satisfies this equation here. Phi is 1 plus 1 over phi. If I multiply both sides by phi, I get phi squared equals phi plus one. And here is where the square is scary quadratic equation. We see it there. We can solve it. It has two roots, uh, 1 plus root 5 over 2 or 1 minus root 5 over 2. And we know that we are interested in the root which is bigger than 1 because that's what we said here. So we get take this one and phi is the number 1 plus root 5 over 2 which is 1.61803 dot dot dot. So that is the proportions of the golden rectangle. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. So that's true for rectangle. And this number very much appears in other areas of mathematics. And a lovely link was found to the Fibonacci sequence by Kepler. So you may have heard of Kepler. He had three laws named after him, the three laws of planetary motion. He also did a lot of work on how you pack spheres together Really, quite a, a substantially brilliant mathematician. And he was looking at a famous sequence, which is called the Fibonacci sequence, which you may have seen. That's this sequence here. And what happens with the Fibonacci sequence is if we, we add successive terms, 1 plus 1 is 2, 1 plus 2 is 3, 2 plus 3 is 5, and so on, you get this nice sequence of numbers. And this comes up all over the place. And Kepler. Had a look at the ratio of the successive terms of this. So 1 divided by 1 is 1, 2 divided by 1 is 2, 3 divided by 2 is 1.5. And if you carry on, you start getting towards what we call a limit. And the limit is the golden ratio. And you can prove that quite rigorously. So there's a very nice link between the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence. In fact, here is the formula for the nth term of the Fibonacci sequence explicitly in terms of phi and 1 minus phi. And that formula is absolutely right. It's somewhat weird that it always produces a whole number, but it does, and that is an explicit formula for the nth Fibonacci sequence in terms of phi. Very good. Phi is the solution of a quadratic equation. We see it as a rectangle. And the Greeks, who are interested in geometry, knew about phi. Euclid refers to it in his book, The Elements, which is the oldest mathematical textbook. And it's possible to construct it using a ruler and compass. You can construct the solution of any quadratic equation using a ruler and compass. And here's the construction for phi. You draw a square of side a. You bisect this side here. You then extend your compass from that point to the corner here. You go down here. And what you end up with is the golden rectangle. And it's a very nice construction, the golden rectangle, which you can easily do, and gives you the number phi. And in the transcript for this talk, I I actually proved this mathematically. So that length there is phi um, in proportion to that length there. And once you've got that length, once you've got the length phi, you can do some nice things with it. And one of the nicest things you can do with it once you've got it is you can construct a pentagon. So the pentagon has the nice property that if its uh, side length is 1, then the length of the diagonals is uh, phi. So you can construct this triangle here once you've got phi, And that allows you to go on and construct the rest of the pentagon. So the pentagon has the property that the length of the diagonal compared with the length of the side is the golden ratio. Nice link in geometry. And that property is useful for other things. So you can use it to construct a pentagram, which is the shape on the American flag. And Roger Penrose, who's one of the great mathematicians of our current era, who I think was a former professor of geometry actually here, um, used it to construct things called Penrose tilings, which are uh, triangles with the angle um, same angle as the pentagram. And you can use these to uh, produce what's called a non-periodic tiling of the plane, which is a very nice geometrical construction. If you go to the University of Oxford and go to the Andrew Wiles building, which is their maths department, outside, the paving stones are all in this shape. And in my Gresham lecture next month, which is called The Art of Maths, I'm going to talk quite a lot about tilings and tessellations as part of the way maths contributes to art. So the golden ratio very much is important here and in the pentagram for basically the same reason. The final thing I want to talk about the golden ratio is its irrationality. We're going to come back to this. An irrational number is a number which has the property that it cannot be represented by a fraction, m divided by n. So there's lots of irrational numbers out there. In fact, there's more irrational numbers than there are non-irrational numbers. But the golden ratio is an example of an irrational number. There's no two numbers, m and n, such that One divided by the other gives you the golden ratio. And as I say, I'll come back to this. Now, Livio, in that quote I put up earlier, said that the golden ratio is the most important number in the whole of mathematics. Mathematicians spend all of their life thinking about the golden ratio and nothing else. Is this true? Does it play a central role? No. As a mathematician, I can say this with certainty. It plays a role. We've seen it has nice properties. We see it in geometry. We see it in the pentagram. It's there in the Fibonacci sequence. Yes, it's a nice number. It has nice properties. But I wouldn't say it's the most important number the way Livio says. He says it's the most important number there is. And in football analogy, I would say it's definitely in the championship league. So it's a good team, but not quite on the same level as those in the Premiership. So let's compare it with some numbers in the Premier League. There we are. We'll have a look at some Premier League numbers in mathematics for comparison. So the Premier League, of course, has good teams and not so good teams. Um, I'm very pleased to say that my current team, I won't say which it is, is at the moment slightly above the relegation level, which is good. but uh, and I would say at the bottom of the Premier League, but definitely in a different league from the Golden Ratio, are two of my favourite numbers: root two and root three. Uh, when I was at school, I wrote my first ever computer program, and that was to calculate the square root of two. And I was so proud of myself. Okay, 1.4142135623730950488. Okay, remember it still carries on forever. Where do we see root 2? Well, if we have a triangle of side 1, obviously all the sides 1, if I take a square of side 1, the diagonal of that is root 2. If you take a sheet of A4 paper, the proportions of A4 paper, which is the paper most of us use, is 1 to the square root of 2. If you calculate your electricity bill, you use the square root of 2. It comes up everywhere. So that's the diagonal of the square which is a much more commonly occurring shape than the pentagon, which is the next one, on, which certainly has a diagonal of phi. And if we go one step on to the hexagon, which we see in um, beehives and many other, other shapes, crystals and so on, the, di- the short diagonal of that is the square root of three. So here we have two shapes which are much, much more common than the pentagon, which have ratio root two and root three. So if people say to me the golden ratio is the most important number because it's the diagonal of the pentagon, I would say, yeah, but what about the square or the hexagon? You'd never get them mentioned. The long diagonal has length two. So they're in the Premier League, great numbers, far more commonly arising than the uh, golden ratio. But what's, in the, what's at the top of the... What's the you know, what are the Liverpools or whatever in the, in the number land? Well, there are several which claim attention up there Um, And certainly, pretty well, one of the most important is the number pi. And pi was known way back to the Greeks. Archimedes, that great genius of mathematics, computed um, pi pretty accurately for the day. So pi is the ratio of the um, circumference of a circle to its diameter. It's an irrational number, 3.141592653589793, blah, 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 blah. Um, And it has this most wonderful formula representing it in terms of odd numbers, which I know these things are subjective, but this is my favourite formula in the whole of mathematics. Anything involving areas involves pi. So in the mathematical subject of calculus and integration, you see pi everywhere. If you are um, an actuary and you're calculating death using statistics, you will be using pi in every formula that you use. This number comes into absolutely everything. Equal first in the Premier League is the number E, 2.718281828, which has this slightly scary definition. Limit as 1 plus 1 over n to the n, or slightly less scary in terms of factorials. And the number E, often called Euler's number, um, E, Euler, maybe, Um, is the number which lies at the heart of how things grow. And it was originally studied or discovered in terms of compound interest. So that's the number E. It's hard to conceive of a universe without pi and E. And here is a quote from me, but I think many people would agree with it, that practically every formula in science and engineering involves E or pi, or the two together. For example, anything to do with waves involves the two combined. In my own work, pretty well every page of mathematics I write will have pi or e on it somewhere. Um, I mean, and that's every day I do this. I've been doing research in maths for over 30 years now, or slightly longer actually. Um, um, I've used the golden ratio twice in my entire career. So that gives you some indication of the relative importance in my own estimation. So e and pi at the top of the Premier League, there are a few other numbers which are equally up there, namely naught one, minus one, or i. And they are beautifully linked together by this wonderful formula, e to the i pi is minus one, or equivalently e to the i pi plus one is zero. My when I first came across this, I was so pleased that my mother knitted it into a sweatshirt for me. Uh, um, And I'd like to point out that the golden ratio isn't anywhere in those formally, even though it is claimed to be the most important number in the whole of mathematics. So from a mathematical point of view, the golden ratio just isn't there. Um, Let's have a look at the links with nature, because the other claim is that it's very much linked to nature. It is certainly true that the golden ratio appears in nature. If you have crystals with five-fold symmetry, or quasi-crystals, as they're often called, you will see it, because it's there in the Pentagon. And there's an example. But these are very rare in comparison with cubes or um, hexagons or stuff. And these are crystals which involve the ratios root 2 and root 3. Um, the golden ratio, as we said, saw, is, was discovered by Kepler, is linked to the Fibonacci sequence which is defined using this relationship. Um, This was um, invented or discovered by Fibonacci in the 16th century as a way of looking at population growth. He was looking at the way um, rabbits reproduced. And it's a well-established law for population growth. And so we would expect to see the golden ratio appearing when we study populations. It also relates to the way things pack together. So the golden ratio appears in the garden. Appears in two uh, contexts, certainly uh, spirals in a sunflower uh, linked to Fibonacci sequence, which links to the golden ratio. And if you take a beehive, because bees uh, reproduce in a similar way to rabbits, roughly speaking, uh, 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 biologically, maybe not, but certainly mathematically they do, um, you end up with having uh, proportions of drones to other bits of the beehive roughly in the golden ratio. And that's all to do with population growth. And we understand this. These are well understood things. So in the garden, yes, you'll see the golden ratio here and there. But much, much more is claimed. So here's the myth. So the myth is that the golden ratio appears everywhere in the human body. This was what the Da Vinci Code said. One of my favorite examples being that the claim I decided not to show a full-length picture in case people were offended. But if you measure your height of your navel up to there and compare that with your height, then the two are in the golden ratio. Even more is claimed. It's claimed if you take the perfect human face, then just about every proportion in that is to do with the golden ratio. This is something I downloaded for the internet where they drew golden rectangles over a perfect human face to show that the golden ratio was there. Is this true? Well, that's the perfect face. I'm not so sure about this one. Uh, (laughs) But it's certainly My wife insisted I put this one on. Um, None of this is remotely true. Um, The human body, if you measure it, has lots and lots of ratios in it. I can take the length of my arm divided by the length of my leg and stuff like that. Most of these ratios are between 1 and 2, because if they weren't, we'd be far too big or far too wide or stuff. And so if you've got lots of ratios between 1 and 2, some will be close to the golden ratio. So I did a a, a very scientific study amongst my... One of the great things about teaching university is that I have 400 students in front of me most mornings I can do experiments on. And I got them to measure their height and divide by their navel height... That was fun. And, and we recorded the uh, frequency, and this is what we got. And we found, yeah, it sort of vaguely gets interesting towards this. And then there's a dip. And the dip was more or less where the golden ratio was. And then they go up to here. So draw what conclusion you want from that. So there's lots of ratios in the human body. Some are close to the golden ratio. Most are not. And the fact is, you can't really tell because... You know, there's lots of variations. If I did a survey with you, I won't. um, You'd get similar variations. And a lot of this business of finding the golden ratio in stuff is the tendency of the human brain to look for patterns, even if there aren't any. Uh, This was a pattern that was reported in BBC News where someone had rung in to say that Bodicea had appeared in the clouds. There, can you see her? There's her spear. There's her... Whatever. So there is this tendency to look for patterns. Um, here's another famous thing about the golden ratio. You see this very, very often, this picture of a spiral. If you draw the golden rectangle, knock off a square, carry on knocking off squares, and draw circles, here you get this spiral. First of all, it's not a spiral. Not technically. It's a load of circles, and that's not quite a spiral. But giving it the benefit of the doubt. You then see the shape appearing. So it's claimed to be the shape of a nautilus, the galaxy, or even that wave there. Well, is, is this the case? Well, slightly sort of. The, the spiral that you get when you do this construction is what's called a logarithmic spiral. It has the form mathematically r equals e to the ab theta. e is that number we've seen earlier. Theta is the angle you go round, and r is how far away you are from the centre as you go round. Actually, there's a a typo here. That should be e to the minus b theta. I do apologise. You see this everywhere in nature. And the reason you see it is it it relates to the way um, things evolve. And it has the property that if you change theta by a fixed amount, if you rotate the spiral, you simply rescale it. And so things like galaxies, which evolve by sort of growing in a kind of ordered way, are bound to have this shape. Same with the Nautilus. They all have this shape. But these numbers here, A and B, are arbitrary. They depend upon the object. Um, so they can be any value for the golden spiral, which you, you can calculate. The number is the log phi divided by pi over 2, which is this. And what very few of the popular articles seem to have noticed is that if you actually take a Nautilus and measure it, it's 0.18. It's nothing like the golden ratio. So Nautilus has the spiral form, but it's nothing to do with the golden ratio. And Finally, I just want to talk a bit about art. So I have to be careful here. Some artists, Le Corbusier, for example, have systematically used the golden ratio in their art. They've designed things around it because, basically, they've bought into the myth. They, they believe the myth, and the myth is that the golden ratio gives you the most aesthetically pleasing rectangle. So this is an interesting one. Is the golden rectangle the most aesthetically pleasing? Well, what has happened is psychologists have given lots and lots of people rectangles to look at, and they tick the ones they like best, and guess what? It's not the golden ratio. It's much more close to root 2. Here's a psychological test. There we are. You can decide yourself whether you believe it. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. Um, It's claimed da Vinci used it in his art. There's no evidence of that. Um, Da Vinci mentions lots of ratios, but he mentions whole number ratios only. Um, The Vitruvian Man, which is one of his most famous pictures involving ratios, is claimed to have the golden ratio in it. It doesn't. You can just measure it with a ruler. Um, and examples of finding the golden ratio in da Vinci's pictures are just like finding the ratio in the face. There's lots of ratios out there. Some are better than others. And the same applies to the Parthenon, which is also believed to do this. Here's a picture I got from the internet with a spiral beautifully drawn in, but it seems to be fixed on top of the crane rather than on top of the Parthenon and has otherwise nothing to do with anything. And in fact, the Greeks didn't use it, And the idea it goes anything to do with the passing and goes only back to the 1850s. But I did say that there is a truth out there which is better than the myth. And the truth is this. The golden ratio is the most irrational number there is. What do I mean? A rational number is a number which is expressed in terms of a fraction. And for any number, you can define a number E, which is the difference between that number and and the best fraction which approximates it for a certain denominator. That's the error. Um, And if you take the number phi, this is n, this is the error. That's 10 to the minus 5, minus 4, minus 3, and so on. So these numbers are small. Um, You get this is the error as n increases, and it dips at a certain set of numbers, which are the Fibonacci numbers. So that's phi. If you take pi and plotted on the same picture, pi is red, phi is blue, pi dips much, much lower. And here's a famous dip here, which occurs when pi um, is approximated by the fraction 355 over 113, which was discovered by the Chinese. And it is extremely hard to approximate phi by uh, a rational number. And the reason is very beautiful. There's a thing called the continued fraction uh, expansion um, of various numbers. This is the continued fraction for, for phi. Very, very beautiful expression for this number uh, as a, a sequence of fractions that build on each other. This is the same for pi. For pi, um, phi always has the number 1 here. It's 1 over 1 plus 1 over 1 plus 1 over 1 plus 1 over 1 plus, etc etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Which is extremely beautiful. It follows from the property that phi is 1 plus 1 over phi. Um, with pi, you every so often get these big numbers here 292 and 7. And it's these numbers, it's a bit of a long story, which means that it's very easy to approximate by a fraction. And the fact that all these ones means it's very hard to approximate phi by a fraction. Phi is the most irrational number. And this is genuinely useful. We use it a lot in when we study synchronization of how one sound synchronizes to another. So, if you have two sounds, one of which has a frequency which is a ratio of phi to the other, those two sounds will sound most discordant against each other. And there's evidence that the brain makes certain use of this in order to avoid certain um, um, sort of epileptic type problems. So, yes, it's a great number. It's still earning the Championship League. Sadly, the popular press never reports that phi is exciting because it's the most irrational number, and that's a shame. Okay, so let's move on to my next myth, and I want to talk about a wonderful problem called the Monty Hall problem, which some of you may have heard of. And I'll tell you the story. The basic story behind the Monty Hall problem is that this was introduced by someone not surprisingly called Monty Hall, who was a game show host. And the story was at the end of the game show, Monty Hall would present the contestants of the game show with three doors. And the contestants are shown three shut doors, and behind one was a great prize, such as a car, and between the other two was a goat. And Monty Hall would ask the contestants to choose a door, which they would then do. And he would then open up another door to reveal a goat. And he challenged the contestants, should you stick with the door that you have chosen, or would you like to change to the other door that's left? So the contestants are asked to do this, and then the door they finally choose is opened, and if it's a goat, they get a goat, and if it's a car, they get a car. And the Monty Hall problem is this, should you change your door or not? Right, so quick survey, who would change the door? And who wouldn't change the door? Hmm, seems about 50-50. Interesting. Well, the basic myth is that you should change the door. The often quoted answer is yes. If you want a slightly non-scientific but popular press account of this, the film 21, which is all about a group of students from um, um, MIT, in America, who go off to Las Vegas to break the bank there by essentially counting cards, um, the, the film opens firstly with a Fibonacci sequence and then evolves into them discussing the Monty Hall problem and saying you should always change the door. But this is a myth, and it's certainly not always correct. And the answer to this kind of puzzle of whether you should change the door or not depends on really the situation and the relationship between the host and the contestant. And I'm going to give three different answers to this problem, which give three different cases of whether you should change the door or not. So the first case is where you have a a host, which is Monty Hall, who knows what's going on and is kind. And what Monty Hall says to the contestants is, I'm going to open the door and I will guarantee you that the door I open will have a goat behind it. Okay. So basically, the contestant chooses a door. Monty Hall opens the door. It has a goat behind it. The contestant has to decide whether to change. Now, the reason that they should change in this case is as follows. When you have three doors, the chance of choosing a car is a third. OK? You just choose the door, the chance a car is a third. Before you do this, you know that Monty Hall is going to open the door to reveal a goat. You choose a door. Monty Hall opens a door. A goat is revealed. Nothing has changed. The information you had before and the information you have after exactly the same. So the chance you have a car is still a third, and the chance that the other door is a car is two-thirds, So you double your chances by changing doors. So if your host is kind and knowledgeable, you should always change the door, and you will win. And in the Monty Hall problem, um, that's that's what the the people on 21 said, and that's what happened in the program. You should change doors. That's case one. Case two is different. Case two is where you have an ignorant host. Now, what I mean by this is the host doesn't say in advance they're going to open the door. Instead, you make your choice, and the host basically shuts their eyes or guesses and opens the door at random. And they reveal a goat. Now, this is actually different from the last case. In this case, because... You don't know in advance whether it's going to be a goat or a car. You're actually revealing new information by opening the door and revealing a goat. It's kind of subtle, but it's the case that the problem has actually changed. More information has been given. And what that does is actually increases your chances of having a car behind you. So the original chance was a third, and that piece of information actually increases that chance to a half. It's a bit subtle to explain the entire reason. Um, it's all, it can all be explained in terms of Bayes' theorem, which is how information changes things. And it's all in the transcript if you want to read the, it in detail. But what it basically means is that in the case of the ignorant host, if he, he or she opens the door, then you've actually increases your chance. So you've got up to a half. It actually doesn't matter whether you change or not. Um, And if the game show host said it will cost you £10 to to change your choice, then you certainly shouldn't do. And this is important because many things in life are like this. But my favourite case is this, the knowledgeable and unkind host and the knowledgeable contestant. So what happens in this case is the contestant... um, chooses a door and tells the host. Let's suppose they choose a car. The host opens um, the door with the goat behind and challenges them to choose. Because they're knowledgeable and know the answer, they've got to change. They change, and they get a goat. Okay, So they get a goat. Um, And then, if they choose a goat, the host subtly changes the rules without anyone noticing, which is to say, well, tell me which of these two doors you'd like to... Um, well, we'll eliminate one of the doors. And they say, oh, well, I'll eliminate the one on the right. So they eliminate that. And then they say, oh, well, now do you want to choose? And again, being a uh, knowledgeable person, they choose and change. And the chance of getting a car in that case is a half. And that means that if they choose a car, they lose. And in this case, if they choose a goat with probability two-thirds, they um, lose half the time. So in this case, they actually end up losing big time and get the car with a probability a third. So what the host does is he exploits the fact that the contestant thinks and they know what they're doing to actually work that against them. And in this case, they lose. So the, the unkind host and the knowledgeable contestant will end up with a contestant that gets a goat, And I've tried this out, on my students, who think they know the answer, and this is how I win every time. Well, two-thirds of the time. Um, I should say I'm indebted to Rob Easterway, who uh, is a wonderful populariser of mathematics, who introduced me to this um, in an article he wrote, A Little Knowledge is a Dangerous Thing. And if you want to learn more about the Monty Hall problem, there's a very nice book by Rosenhaus, which talks about all the cases that I talk about here. So that's the Monty Hall problem, and say the myth is that you should always change, but the reality is it all depends upon how much your host knows and how much you know. So I want to now talk about something which isn't quite a myth, but more a sort of mathematical misconception, which has almost become a myth. And this is a thing called the four-colour theorem. So a bit of history on this. Uh, in, I suppose, the 17th and 18th century, maps were being produced, which were the first maps to be produced in colour. This is an early map of Europe produced in colour. And colours were expensive, and people wanted to produce maps with as few colours as possible, because that was cheaper. But they had to have certain rules when colouring a map. And they had basically two rules. Um, Each country should all be coloured the same colour. So uh, this isn't country, I know it's counties, but it'll do. So Somerset, where I sort of live, um, these are the traditional counties, all has one colour, which is green. Uh, Devon is purple, Kent is orange. So each country must have one colour. And if two countries share a border, like Devon and Somerset or Devon and Dorset, Uh, then they should be different colours so that you can differentiate one from the other. So these are the two rules. And the question that the map makers asked was, what is the smallest number of colours that is needed to colour a map according to those two rules? So people started making maps. And they discovered... First of all, that you must have at least four colours. so here is an example of a map which requires four colours um, you've got uh, blue on the light blue here, red, yellow, blue. You can't do with this with three colours because otherwise you'd have two countries with the same colour overlapping. Um, this colour here we could have the same as the light blue here, and that would work. So you must have at least four colours to color a map with these rules and then map makers started producing maps more generally and they found empirically that they didn't need more than four colors so here are two maps this is the united states with all the states colored in with uh, just four colors uh, blue orange green and red and here is kind of a general map i've uh, just made up map Again, blue, red, yellow, blue, and green. um, And only four colours were needed. And in 1852, Guthrie, who was uh, trying to colour the map of the counties of England, made a conjecture that four colours were all that were needed. And he wrote about his conjecture to various mathematicians of the day, including Hamilton and Babbage. And they thought about it very hard. And they couldn't um, prove it. And so it became an interesting problem for the mathematicians of the day. In 1879, a mathematician called Kemp actually produced a proof. And it was accepted for about seven years before they found a mistake in it. And they patched up the mistake. And it became what was called the five color theorem, which was that at most, five colors were required to color a map. And when I was at school, this proof was this uh, uh, question was still around, and it had become one of the most interesting, open questions in the whole of mathematics, and it achieved a degree of notoriety in the process. And what was really nice was that in 1976, it was proved in a really, at the time, novel way. So two mathematicians, Apple and Harkon, managed to reduce the problem of, of colouring any map to one of colouring a large number but different maps. And they checked every single map on a computer, and they found that the four-colour theorem held. And this was a proof by a computer, and it was one of the first ever proofs by computer. And it was very controversial at the time. Many mathematicians said it can't be a proof because it can't be checked by a human being. But in reality, this was ushering in a new age, and many, many proofs in mathematics are now done by computer, including a lot of my own work. So for me, it was very exciting um, that this happened. And if you want to read about it, uh, Robin Wilson, who was a predecessor of from me as Gresham Professor of Geometry, and still gives wonderful lectures um, to Gresham College, wrote this lovely book, Four Colours Suffice, How the Map Problem Was Solved by Robin Wilson. But I had a discussion with Robin about this. And I said, Robin, your book is incorrectly titled. In fact, it's almost a myth. And what's the myth? Well, it's a myth, really, amongst mathematicians about the four-colour theorem. Now, this matters, and I'll come tell you why in a sec, because all this looks like it's coloring a map. And you might think, well, you know, maps are interesting, but they're not that interesting, really. But actually, this is a really important problem in modern technology. And this brings into my own work. Because if you have Wi-Fi systems, or any sort of radio system, and you have them in close proximity, it's important that the Wi-Fi systems have different frequencies to avoid interference. And you want to know what's the most number of frequencies that you need to use in a Wi-Fi system to avoid interference in, in, say, an office block. And for frequencies, read color. For map, read office block. And you have the same problem. So it's actually important to crack this problem for communications technology as much as for coloring in a map. And my argument with Robin was not that four colors suffice, but this bit here, how the map problem was solved. And the reason I have this is that the truth is that the four-color theorem correctly applies to all non-contiguous planar graphs. That makes that sense? A non-contiguous planar graph is something you draw on a piece of paper like we have, where different regions can be colored in any way that you want. The myth is that the four-colour theorem applies to the maps that were used in the original description. And actually, it doesn't. The four-colour theorem doesn't apply to maps. You need at least five colours to colour a map. And here is an example. So here we have the uh, world of Gresham land, in which we have Lake Gresham here and Lake Geometry. and. Lakes are blue, of course. So I've colored them in both blue. And um, here are four colors that need to be colored that map, which cannot be blue. And there is no way you can color that map with four colors. You need five colors to color that map. I know we've proved you can do it with four colors. but Actually, you need five colors. What's gone wrong, Well, what's gone wrong, it's so subtle you may not have noticed, but what's gone wrong is that we've put an extra condition on this map, which is that lakes have to be blue. So the condition that the sea is always blue, or in the case of the British, that the empire is always red, actually means you can't colour a map with four colours. The theorem breaks down... And Robin's title, How the Map Problem Was Solved, is actually not right. And in fact, a map, if you have the condition that empires have to be all the same color, you in fact need arbitrary number of colors to color a map. And uh, so the four color theorem is a great theorem, but nothing to do with maps. Okay. And I say, there's my counterexample, Lake Gresham and Lake Geometry. So my final mathematical myth is all to do with cutting a cake. Cutting a cake. Um, How do you cut a a cake? And this was something described to me at school. And it was only later on I realized that it was complete rubbish. Um, And again, whole books have been written on this, this problem. And the question is, how do you cut a cake fairly? So the usual way this is posed is you have a cake. And you have two people. And you want to cut it in such a way that each person thinks that they have got half the cake. So this is what we call a fair cut here. And here's an unfair cut here where you clearly, one side is bigger than the other. And this is important for cakes. It's sadly important with couples that are divorcing where lawyers have to make sure that each couple gets what they think is half of the assets. Providing the lawyer gets a ton of money as well. Okay, So how do you cut a cake? And there's an algorithm that's proposed and talked about in textbooks, which is called the I-cut-you-choose method. And the I-cut-you-choose method is that one party divides up the cake, and the second party then has the first choice. So party number one tries to judge as carefully as possible that they've cut the cake exactly in half, knowing if they haven't done that then the second party will always do better because they have the first choice. Okay. So this is the I-cut-you-choose method. Interest the first party to cut the cake as fairly as possible so that the second party will get as close to a half as possible. Okay I have two problems with this method. Firstly How do I program it on a computer? And secondly, it's complete garbage. So this is a myth. And it was taught to me at school. And why is it a myth? You only have to think for a second to realize in this that the advantage is overwhelmingly to the second party. It's the person that chooses first is always going to win. Um, So here's a cake. Um, Happy birthday, Gresham. My argument is this. Let's suppose that the first person is really bad at cutting. Maybe they can't see very well. So they just randomly cut the cake where they think it's a half. And then the second party looks and thinks, oh, that's the biggest piece, and I'll go off with that. And in that extreme example, the second party always wins. It's a myth. The I cut, you choose method is garbage. Um, You also can't program it. And a much better method to use is an iterative method And this is how a computer would do it. Um, So the idea is this. One person cuts the cake in two. There are two pieces. One's always going to be bigger than the other. You can't cut it exactly in half. So what you do is you line up the two pieces um, against each other, and you just cut off the bit which remains, which is different. You then have two identical pieces and a new piece. So each person takes one of the identical pieces, which you've got by lining one up against the other, there's now a new piece. And now what we've done, what mathematicians often do, is they take a big problem, and then they reduce it to a much smaller problem, which is essentially the same. And then you carry on. That's your new cake, And you carry on doing this process until only the crumbs are left. And that is a fair, if somewhat messy, way to divide up a cake. And I'll finish there with a limerick. A mathematician named Hall once went to a fancy dress ball. They thought they would risk it and go as a biscuit, but a dog ate them up, crumbs and all. Thank you very much. (laughs)